Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Just before we get started, if you want to help fund this podcast so it can continue, go to unitedthroughtime.com forward slash support for details on how to sign up to be a patron. On with the show. Cheers. This is the story of an outcast, a Darlington-born footballer who changed his sport for future generations. This is the story of a revolutionary centre-half, a tobacconist, a two-time title winner, FA Cup winner, England international. This is the story of Charlie Roberts, and you're listening to United Through Time. He reads well, so, you know, from the second division to the first division, and then the league championship and the cup, and then the league championship again. You know, the first English international, etc., etc. You know, it is a terrific start. As a founding member of the original PFA, the influence of Charlie Roberts still penetrates modern football. For good or for bad, the professional footballer is now a man or woman who holds some power. Some earn an enormous amount of money now. Charlie Roberts earned £4 a week. But his rebellious nature, his determination, his character, they were all key in the shaping of 20th century and now 21st century football. On the pitch, his style of play and quality led the way for future generations. It was pioneering, game-changing even. Roberts' class would inspire future Italy manager Vittorio Pozzo, the only man to ever win two World Cups as a manager. Roberts' characteristics and achievements are remnants of an era long past, but one which transformed football from pastime to potential business. Welcome to United Through Time, the Manchester United history podcast documenting the most influential individuals in the club's history. In series one, we focus on the formative characters who helped to establish one of the world's most successful football clubs in the late 19th and early 20th century. Already on United Through Time, we've had Louis Rocca, T-boy, chief scout, fixer, charismatic Italian. He was first and then it was Harry Stafford, the hard-tackling, womanising captain who saved Newton Heath and inspired John Henry Davies, the subject of episode three, to take over the club and pump it full of money. In episode four, it was Ernest Magnell, the man who Davies brought in to guide United to titles, cups and to Old Trafford. Now, it's Charlie Roberts. I'm your host, Harry Robinson, and joining me on this episode of United Through Time will be a number of esteemed journalists and authors. 
You'll hear from Mark Metcalf, author of many a book on Manchester United and early football history, including Manchester United 1907 to 1911, the halcyon years. We'll also talk to Paddy Barkley, former sports journalist of the year and author of Sir Matt Busby's biography and Sir Alex Ferguson too. Gary James is another football historian and author who released his latest book on Mancunian football history in April 2020, The Emergence of Footballing Cultures in Manchester, 1840-1919. to Ian Gardiner wrote the biography of Harry Stafford and Richard Butler, who launched a campaign in 2015 to get Charlie Roberts recognised in his hometown of Darlington. As 70,000 spectators gathered on the sloping sides of the Sydenham ground at the Crystal Palace, the English Cup final was not far from kickoff. It was, as it is today, the Football Association's grand day. Manchester United fans had travelled down from Lancashire overnight on 150 special excursion trains, some of them put on by T. Cook and Son. They were greeted by a rainstorm on their arrival at Euston, King's Cross and Paddington. In the dressing room, with a buzz building from above, Charlie Roberts could look round and see his fellow United players. He was their captain. Kit man Louis Rocker, about 27 at this point, just a year older than Charlie, had laid out United strips for the big occasion. They'd been donated by United fan and famous stage performer George Roby. A red rose, the red rose of Lancashire, adorned the kit with a red chevron stretching across a clean white uniform that laced up towards the Adam's apple. At almost 6 foot and 13 stone, Charlie filled his kit out well. By this point, he was a married man and a father. 51-year-old Frederick Wall, who would later become a knight of the realm, was strolling around the Manchester United dressing room. These were the stars of the country. As secretary of the Football Association, a position he'd already held for 14 years, he no doubt wanted to chat and to mingle with the famous United players ahead of kickoff. Meredith, Roberts, House, Turnbull, Burgess, Modger. Charlie, who was never a real swearer, told him to get lost. He was about to do his team talk. This was Charlie Roberts, a leader, a fearless pioneer and a rebel. Frederick Wall was said to be furious at the impudence of Captain Charlie, but nevertheless, he trudged out of the dressing room as Charlie Roberts told his teams how they were going to play. After 20 minutes or so, he would create the chance that led to Sandy Turnbull's winning goal. A couple of days later, Roberts would sit afront the carriage of United, led by white horses as it moved through the streets of Manchester to the adulation of the supporters. He lifted the cup up and down every so often, launching it into the sky to a regular cheer. Try to remember that union is strength and without it, you can do nothing. Charlie Roberts was born in Darlington, but he'd spend most of his life in Manchester as a footballer, a unionist and a tobacconist. He devoted much of his life to combating the forces working against footballers in England, Scotland and Wales. Charlie grew up in Victorian Britain in an era where laissez-faire dominated political policy the idea of meritocracy flowed through society. Workers could climb the mythical ladder and make something of themselves, if only they tried. And yet, as Victorian turned Edwardian and then Georgian, footballers were the paradox. They were the modern slaves, the odd one out, the outcasts. Charlie Roberts was one of those. Every footballer was not an architect of his own fortune. Instead, every footballer was a victim of a system which enslaved them. 
Roberts fought against this. And on the pitch, he was equally as dominant, even in the 1950s and 60s, 30 years after the death of Charlie Roberts. Journalists and fans alike would use Charlie as the benchmark for a quality centre-half. He was built like an athlete, had the leadership of a naval captain and the skill of the very best footballer. Are these comments the product of generations of exaggeration? Perhaps a little. But Roberts led the way in his era. He broke the constraints of the halfway line and as a centre-half dominated games and dragged Manchester United forward. First to promotion, then to a title, then to a cup and so on. In September 1825, George Stevenson's Locomotion No. 1 ushered in the modern railway age. It travelled between Shildon and Stockton-on-Tees via Darlington, which lies on the River Skern, a tributary to the Tees. Not far from the northeastern hub of Smoggies, Mackhams and Geordies, Darlow became an important centre of railway manufacturing in the 19th century, with the North Road shops opening in 1863. The town became centred around the railways. Up until the early 1800s, it had been a small market town, but the arrival of a collection of prominent employers and philanthropists in the area caused rapid change, like in much of England and Britain. The Peaks and the Backhouses were powerful Quaker families who brought with them business, jobs and gifts to the town. In 1864, while Jacob Roberts was kissing his bride Elizabeth Beach down in Staffordshire, Joseph Peake was opening his latest gift. Darlington's most famous landmark, its clock tower, which holds the sister bells of London's Big Ben. Darlington became one of the engineering centres of England, the railways, the ironworks and the bridge building. Unlike many of the towns around the area, it wasn't a mining town. Darlington's not, it wouldn't traditionally be described as a mining community, very much a railway town. Uh, if it's got a Trinian history. But it did have many links with the area around it. County Durham had an incredible 204 mines registered in 1888. 204. 58 of them were owned by companies in Darlington, although none of them were actually in the town. Instead, Bishop Auckland, 12 miles from Darlow, had 14. Cockfield, a similar distance away, had 12. Spennymore had 5. That was Mark Metcalf you heard talking there. And he's right. Darlington was mainly a railway town, but it had to service those railways with ironworks and bridge building. Bridges built in Darlington can now be found on the Nile, the Amazon, and more locally, at the Humber, the Middlesbrough Transporter Bridge, the Tyne Bridge, etc. Darlington was a town with jobs aplenty, three roaring industries at the heart of Britain's industrial revolution, and simultaneously three industries in engineering, railways and mining that were at the heart of Britain's burgeoning trade union movement. And into this world, Charles Roberts was born, the sixth and last child of Jacob Roberts and Elizabeth Beach. Jacob was the son of a coal miner who began working as a manual labourer as a young man in the 1850s when his father had died and he was left to care for the household and his mother as the eldest son. His mother would remarry, but for a couple of years, Jacob was the man of the house. Elizabeth was the daughter of William Beach, who had been a potter in Stoke and then a beer seller. Together, they made a typical working class family. And by the time of Charlie's birth, Jacob had been a puddler at the ironworks for nigh on 20 years, turning pig iron into rout iron. The Roberts were living on Fry Street in the 1880s. Charlie's eldest sister, Hannah, would leave home before he could even notice, going off to marry Charles Wright. She was already 19 when Charlie was born. 
Their neighbours on the streets were the Smiths, the Jeevans and the Allens, and all of the men were puddlers at the local ironworks. As with much of England in this era, industries agglomerated in towns, and within those towns, the workers lived near or next to each other too. Now, when Charlie started playing football, it's hard to say. His brother Christopher was six years his senior, and he may have played with him on Fry Street, but the neighbours' kids were either girls who didn't normally get invited to play, or they were too old for the Roberts' kids to play with, really. But they would have kicked something about on the street at this stage. At the age of five, though, Charlie saw his mother in tears when 16-year-old elder brother Isaac Roberts died. I can't say, and I have looked, what he died of, but the most common causes of death at this time were smallpox, measles, scarlet fever, whooping cough, typhus, dysentery, cholera and tuberculosis. It could have been any of these, but the Roberts family was now down to five children. And in 1891, Hannah had gone, so Jacob and Elizabeth had only four under their roof. They were now living at 8 Spring Street in Darlington, once again surrounded by employees of the ironworks. Charlie was a scholar by this point on the census, simply meaning he received some kind of education, possibly from the company his father worked for. At 13, he left school to become a furnace man at the ironworks, probably starting as an apprentice, learning on the job at the same place as his dad. This was Victorian Britain for the working class family, a 13-year-old in a full-time job. Charlie's first proper football club was Rise Car Rangers, his most local team. They were a small side, but they did enter the 1897 Northern Football League, a decent setup where the wages were good and the football was really high quality. Rise Car played in Division 2 that year and finished second, only a point off the top, but for some reason never returned to the league. Now, Roberts may have played here, but he was only 14 or 15, so it's unlikely. He certainly played for the works team at his job at the Ironworks and he then joined Darlington St Augustine's, the biggest team in town. Saints won the inaugural Northern League in 1890 and would regularly get crowds of about 3,000 at their Chestnut Grove ground, once considered the best football stadium in the North East. The team folded early in the First World War, but it started Roberts' career. They finished 5th in 1899, 4th in 1900, off the back of his good performances for Saints, Roberts earned a trial at Sheffield United, but they didn't bring him in permanently. And so, a couple of years later, he moved to Bishop's Auckland instead, just up the road. He played um, for a couple of clubs in, in the sort of local area when he was younger. Um, I mean, Bishop Auckland was the one he, he was at before he sort of turned to professional football. While he played football, he still worked as a furnace man at the ironworks and still lived with his parents. All his siblings had left home by this point, but at 17, Charlie was still staying with his parents. They'd all now moved to Low Boyne Street in the Harrogate Hill area of Darlington. Charlie would travel to work with his dad and the others on his street, all of whom were employed at the same ironworks. Each morning, a row of flat-capped men would step out of their doorways and trudge off in the same direction. Bishops Auckland were another decent team. Roberts was mainly the understudy to a man called Anthony Dark, who later played for Middlesbrough. He was still yet to turn 20, Charlie, but his name was well known around Darlington and parts of the North East. He was clearly a talent and was selected to represent the Northern League eleven on April 14, 1903. It was in this performance, says Mark Metcalf, with plenty of club secretaries looking on, that he caught the eye of First Division boss, this is in the Football League First Division, H.N. Nixon, the manager of Grimsby Town. Ten days later, he signed his first professional contract at the club. His wage might have actually dropped, and this is a theme we'll come back to. Northern League players could be pretty well paid because there was no wage cap, 
unlike in the Football League, where the maximum was just over £4 a week. Either way, by the time Charlie put pen to paper at Grimsby, the Mariners had been relegated to the second division of the Football League. He joined, nevertheless, because it was still a big step, although that's not to say there weren't quality teams in the Northern League, because there were. Charlie left home for the first time, packing his bags and moving 126 miles south and setting his suitcase down in a small accommodation in Grimsby, next to the River Humber on the very east of northern England. Only seven of last season's team have been re-engaged, wrote the papers. Eight new players have been secured and if none of them are men of great reputation, they at least have the saving grace of being young and of having been recommended by good judges of the game. The players in question are C. Roberts, Bishop Auckland, centre-half, who has every appearance of making a capital substitute for Ben Hall and must certainly be reckoned a capture. As Roberts joined Grimsby from Bishop Auckland, the Fishermen also brought in H.H. Lappin from Manchester United, an outside left, and trainer Jay Wheeler, another ex-United recruit. This is where our story begins to come together. On the East Coast, Charlie Roberts was playing for Grimsby Town and playing well, really well. A hundred miles to the west, Harry Stafford had just saved Manchester United from the brink of extinction. John Henry Davies had pumped the club full of money, rebuilt a stand and the changing rooms, and things were on the up. They played in red and white now. And 30 miles north of that, James Ernest Magnell was sat atop a lawnmower, trimming the grass at Burnley's Turf Moor ground, his jacket left neatly folded on the side of the pitch. Over the next year, these three parties, Ernest Magnell, Charlie Roberts and Manchester United, were joined together to start, as Mark Metcalf put as the title of his book, Manchester United's First Halcyon Years. I hope you're enjoying this episode of United Through Time. It's been a fun one to produce, there's no doubt about that. The show is going to continue in just a second, but I just wanted to offer you the chance to help fund United Through Time to keep making podcasts like this. You can go to unitedthroughtime.com forward slash support to find out more information on how to become a patron. Patreon is a platform where so-called creators can offer extra bonus content to their listeners or viewers for a small amount of money. There's four tiers available to you between 38p a week and £10 a month. If you're interested, go to unitedthroughtime.com forward slash support. And if you sign up, you won't have to hear this message or any kind of ads ever again. Cheers. Wearing the brown and blue of Grimsby Town, Roberts first appeared for the Fishermen on September the 1st, 1903. They beat Bradford City 2-0. At the end of the month, Ernest Magnall moved from Burnley to Clayton to become secretary manager of Manchester United. Now, Roberts only played 30-odd games for Grimsby, and no doubt Magnall saw him in fewer than five. But in one season, Roberts convinced Magnall that he was worth what would be an enormous fee for the time. Robert scored four goals for Grimsby, and though it wasn't really part of his game, standing at about six foot, he was taller than most of his counterparts. And it wasn't only Magnell who was convinced by the quality of Charlie Roberts. Others, too. United, when they eventually decided to move for him in about eight months' time, they would face enviable glances at the least and stiff competition at the most from Manchester City, among others. But while Charlie was excelling in a Grimsby shirt, his mother Elizabeth passed away in January 1904, still living in Darlington with her husband Jacob. She was 59 and died only a year after her own mother had done so. In April, Grimsby and United met in the second division. Roberts' side beat Magnals by three goals to one. That caused some problems in United's bid for promotion and come the end of the campaign, by which time Charlie Roberts was a red, United would miss out by only one point. 
That game must have done it for Magnol because within two weeks, Roberts has signed a deal at United. Now let's talk about what kind of player Charlie Roberts was. Well, a centre-half to start with, standing six foot tall. He was a strong tackler, excellent in the air, a first-rate passer of the ball, a ball winner and a creative force. He was a new mould of centre-half, one who created as much as he prevented. Here's Paddy Barkley. The centre-half, I think, in, at, at that time, was possibly the main playmaker, the, the pivot of the team, you know? And this is Mark Metcalf. What you had in that period is you had two types of centre-half. You, you had at Sheffield Wednesday, for example, or the Wednesday, Tom Crawshaw, a, a, a brilliant header of the ball and a, a, and a sort of defensive centre-half. And then you had Roberts, and this was unusual at this time, for the centre-half to be the most skillful. He was like your central midfield player. He stepped up, he passed the ball around, and he made opportunities for other people. I mean, he was an imposing uh, character. Over six foot, 13 stone, and an all-action individual. A very good passer of the ball, and a great leader of the other players around him. Paddy again now. Although a centre-half, he would actually have played like... Brian Robson, because centre-halves were creative players um, and, and Charlie Roberts was particularly one of those. And Charlie's grandson, Ted. The 100, you know, the 100 yards, it was in yards in those days, 100 yards, you know, he was a sort of a 10-second man, the grandfather. And, um, the, and the players' union, when they had that, uh, they had a, a great face at one time, as they had a dribbling competition and yeah. running feed and all different things. But my grandfather won the dribbling competition against people like Billy Meredith, you see. Yeah. He was a man for all seasons, a man for all seasons. As late as the 1960s, football journalists and ex-players were still referencing Charlie Roberts as the model centre-half. April 23rd, 1904. That's where we are now. In London, JJ Bentley, chairman of Manchester United, is sat at the plush Holborn restaurant in London. It's the day before the English Cup final, where Manchester City will play Bolton Wanderers, both of whom have never lifted the small silver trophy before. Opposite Bentley, who was a thin, round-faced Lancashire lad with a bushy moustache and a bit of autocratic charm, sat Mr Bellows, an official at Grimsby Town. Back in Grimsby, on the shores of the Humber Estuary, which feeds the North Sea, Charlie Roberts had been met by a man named Harry Stafford, a truly Edwardian man who loved the spotlight and often wore a white top hat and a brightly coloured waistcoat. Stafford explained the intent and ambition of Manchester United to Roberts, who had played the Reds only two weeks previous and spoken to Stafford, among others including manager Ernest Magnall. He was impressed, though, by the ambition of United, who were pushing hard for promotion. Things like the maximum wage in place. So, you know, you couldn't tempt a player to come and play for you just because you were Manchester United then, because obviously United didn't have the money to pay players because they weren't allowed to, and they didn't have the reputation. So he had to persuade people to come to, to, to Manchester United because of the vision that he had, because of where he wanted that club to be. Um, so he's, you know, if you're talking to a, a, any player, really, but if you're talking to a player to try and persuade them to your club, you've got to more or less guarantee them they're going to be getting a game every week or get, guarantee that they're going to get their maximum wage or, or whatever. Um, but also you've got to sell them this dream that this is, this is something special, that this is something more than the club they're currently at. And, I mean, obviously there were 
all sorts of scandals going on about payments and so on all over football. Um, but in truth, you could go to any football club. So there had to be a reason to go to to, to Manchester United, Bayern, and that part of that reason was Ernest Manuel. But there was undoubtedly some financial incentive for Roberts, some serious financial incentive too. Here was a player sought by Derby County and Nottingham Forest, two first division clubs, and Manchester City, soon to be FA Cup winners, and only one point off the top spot in the top league. And so while United couldn't offer above a maximum wage, they could offer an under-the-table signing-on fee. A slipped brown envelope here, a free new suit there. Regularities in payments, um, which, as you, as you will know, having studied that period, uh, basically were part of the game. Everybody was tainted. In the same month, City paid 500 quid to sign Glossop's Irvine Thornley, and half of that fee reportedly went to young Irvine's father. City would be punished heavily for this. And later in the year, Harry Stafford was suspended by the FA for financial irregularities and illegal payments to players at United. There was no direct mention of Charlie Roberts, but you can work it out. Still, anyone could have offered Charlie Roberts a bit of extra cash, and he did choose United, who were on the push to promotion. He sat with Harry Stafford on the end of a telephone line in Grimsby. In London, JJ Bentley spoke with Bellows of Grimsby, and a deal was struck. £600 a record fee to sign recently 21 centre-half Charlie Roberts. A big fee at the time, no doubt supplemented with other payments as well, but still one of the great bargains of football history. So it was kind of, he got his cantona, if you like, quicker than Alex Ferguson did. Um, so... A Grimsby Sunday school were disappointed to see Charlie go. He'd been teaching there in his 12 months on the Humber, whether he continued his supplementary job in Manchester isn't known, but it's unlikely. Instead, he made his impression immediately on his debut, and a big one at that. The game was overall... A very moderate sort of an affair, said the Athletic News. The home 11 included two men who had not previously appeared in the ranks. These were Lyons at inside right and Roberts, who left Grimsby the previous evening at centre-half. The forward has a useful turn of speed and knowledge of the game, but Roberts was almost the best man on the field. His presence certainly strengthened the line and he may safely be looked to as a player who will give a satisfactory account of himself in the future. The 2-0 win against Burton United put Roberts' new team third in the league with a game in hand, three points behind Woolwich Arsenal. The season unfortunately ended without promotion, though it was one which had inspired hope, a new confidence that the new Manchester United team, under the direction of new manager Ernest Magnell, were going places. He'd taken over five games into the campaign and they perhaps made the difference. Not for the first time, Magnol's Reds finished within a point or two of going up. One cannot help but single out Roberts at centre-half, said the Manchester Guardian. As the chief hero of all, he was Manchester's mainstay all through the bad beginning. He is a capture that was indeed well worth making. United had beaten Bristol City at Clayton, 4-1, in a game where Roberts really made his mark. In truth, though, his name would really make national newspapers at the turn of the year for a stellar performance. But we can't speed over to that point just yet, because if we did so, we'd skip over an historic and as yet unbeaten run and record set by Charlie's United side. In late September, Robert scored his first goal for the club, a penalty. But it was a win against Lincoln that heralded an unprecedented achievement. 14 consecutive victories. Lincoln, then Leicester, then Barnsley, 
and then West Brom 2-0. United had scored 11, conceded none in four games. We've got to ask how. Now, the settled presence of Roberts was a major assistance, there's no doubt about that, and so too was the good form of Jack Peddy, by far United's player of the season at this point. But the strange methods of Ernest Magnell may have helped as well. The United players are still undergoing a course of brine baths. The Lancashire Evening Post said ahead of another win for United at home, this one against Burnley. Brian Bath's apparently having some kind of medicinal benefit. Soothing agents, including gelatin and starch, added to salt water to relieve skin irritation and itching. A leader of the Manchester United team, who is at the same time one of the best judges of football form, gives it as his opinion that the Clayton team is now one of the most solid combinations in the whole league. It is not merely that they are winning matches, but they are playing high-class football and have, besides, a reliable man for every position in reserve. United were third with two games in hand, and Roberts returned to his old stomping ground of Grimsby and left with a 1-0 win. He may have hung around for a bit too. It does seem his year on the Humber influenced him a fair bit. He certainly picked up a taste for North Sea trawler fishing. More on that later. At the end of November, with no league match scheduled for one reason or another, United headed to the Essex ground in Leighton, London, near where Leighton Orient now play. They'd been invited to play Corinthian FC, by far the best and most famous amateur side in the country, made up of the best players from the big universities, the ones who could afford to play football for free, and did so with incredible quality. Roberts played the full match. Cockneys were disappointed though. They had expected to welcome Manchester's other team, Manchester's bigger team, Manchester City, the English Cup holders, and were a bit put out when they found out the day before that it was 2nd Division United instead. Still, United were in form, they said, the London Evening Standard, so it should be a good game. In the second half, Manchester United were quite outplayed, reported the Times. Magno had taken his best team down, though injuries to Arxton, Peddy and Williams were genuinely impactful. Peddy had been United's best player of the season, but had picked up a knock at Grimsby the week before. Corinthians went in at half-time 3-1 up, and then ran riot in the second half. Over and over again, the forward line set up strong attacks, and altogether they scored eight more goals. United's goals came from Hartwell and Grassham. The Corinthians were by far the best team United have played all season, and it's a shame they didn't get to play cup holder City because they may well have proved themselves better than the best of the professional teams. An interesting match-up, no doubt, but against United, it was 11-3. United recovered easily in the league, at least, and took a big away following to Doncaster, where they won by one goal. Robertson Downey did a lot of very good work. Manchester United have now recorded seven victories in succession without a goal being scored against them, a feat never previously achieved by any team in connection with the league. Charlie Roberts arrived at Man United just at the right time when they were building a, a, a team and it was just the right fit for him maybe at that time and that's why it worked. That run of clean sheets ended a week later at Gainsborough Trinity, though United did still win and scored three times. And yet despite this incredible run, United were still third. The fact that it was only two points for a win and one for a draw made it difficult to really take up a serious lead at the top of any division and defeat to first place Bolton Wanderers early on in the season had left United making up ground on their nearby rivals. The end of United's run of clean sheets was mentioned little in the papers in truth and with good reason. A meeting of the Football Association on the same weekend put out the following news. Manchester United FC, famous player suspended. Harry Stafford, the saviour of the club and former captain of Newton Heath, had been banned from football until 1907. The same was true for Magnall's predecessor, James West, now a pub manager. 
Stafford, of course, had been the man who signed Roberts for United. The investigation undoubtedly will have considered that signing and how Roberts had been convinced to join 2nd Division United ahead of other 1st Division suitors. Elsewhere in the sports pages, United have been drawn at home to Fulham in the Cup, a Southern League side, and the international fixtures for 1905 had been decided. England would first play Ireland, up in Middlesbrough, on February the 25th. That would be of some interest to Charlie. A second goal for United for Roberts came on the Christmas Eve match in a 3-1 win against Liverpool and his third soon after on New Year's Eve. Again, Magnall took his players to Fairhaven for hot seawater buffs. It was one of the rare comforts for footballers of the era. Writing about his early career, Charlie would say, A player had often to take a nail with him and knock it in the dressing room wall to hang his clothes on, and there were hardly sufficient room to turn round, especially for the visiting side. It was a busy festive period as normal, and so the hot brine baths were no doubt a welcome intervention. United's fixtures were on, and listen to this, Christmas Eve, Boxing Day, New Year's Eve, and then the 2nd, the 3rd, and the 7th of January. On New Year's Day 1905, the Trans-Siberian Railway officially opened and became the longest railway in the world, which it still is today. In United's fixtures, well, they ran riot. 3-1 against Liverpool, and then 3-0, 6-1, and 7-0 the latter against Bradford City, as Roberts scored twice. It started as a close game, but... A long shot by Roberts opened the scoring. It really does seem that from the moment uh, Roberts you know, joined, that United were on the right track. And he got the sixth as well. It was the next day, though, after the 7-0 win, January the 3rd, that provided one of the most exciting games of the decade, and it was the day that Charlie Roberts really made his name. United played league leaders Bolton Wanderers, a local matchup, and according to the Manchester Evening News, one of the most important games ever played under your auspices of the second division of the league. Burnden Park welcomed thousands, some claiming up to 45,000, with many coming from Manchester. Over 5,000 passengers left Manchester Victoria Station, and more came from Burnley, Bury, Oldham, and Blackburn and the surrounding towns. The weather was dull and cheerless, the papers wrote, but. I gave one of my very best displays, Roberts later said. But in the match, there is, in the ordinary way, plenty of rivalry between the teams of Manchester and Bolton. But on that occasion, this was intensified, the fact that both clubs were in the second division and were going neck and neck for the championship. The game was played at Bolton before the largest crowd, which had up to that time been seen on the ground, and the excitement could be felt. Every kick cheered loudly, and what a game it was. There was very little in the two teams, and backwards and forwards went the ball. It is in such a game that one realises how much work there really is for the centre-half to do if he is to perform the whole of his duties. Now it was attacking, now defending. Twice we got the lead and twice it was taken from us, but at length we forged ahead and in the end managed to win by four goals to two. That day made my name in the football world, hence I look back on it with no end of pleasure. United won 4-2 in the end and moved two points behind league leaders Bolton with two games in hand. On a personal note, it was a big moment for Roberts. He was hailed in the papers for his work rate. He initiated many movements in the direction of the home goal and from one of them Davies in saving from Williams tipped the ball against the upright. A week or so later, the quality of Roberts' performance was remembered. By good judges, Roberts of Manchester United is considered to be a ready-made international. With his five goals of the season, Roberts was United's fourth highest scorer by this point. The team's magnificent 14-game winning run was ended at Bristol, though. 
they still managed to get a draw. Nevertheless, the Ancoats poet sent in a contribution to the Manchester Evening News. Manchester United have lost some goals and they don't know where to find them. But leave them alone and they will come home with 17 clubs behind them. United's record during the 14 games was basically unheard of. 45 goals and only 7 conceded. It was little wonder that the Clayton club are counting on promotion. Some were even confident of the championship. There was only one match in the remaining fixtures which gives them any great concern. This was against Liverpool, a game not played until late in the season. In the draw at Bristol, Roberts suffered an injury. At first it seemed okay and he continued to play while Jack Peddy was forced off. Such was the extent of his knock. But Roberts would then miss game after game for United. The first one he was absent for was an FA Cup tie against Southern League Fulham. United drew. The half-back line, lacking as it did the presence of that smartest of players, Roberts, was often found wanting. He actually missed the next four games, including three attempts from United to beat Fulham and go through in the FA Cup. They eventually went out in extra time of a third game held at Villa Park for neutrality. Roberts made his return in a Manchester Cup game against Stockport County, which United navigated with relative ease before he played, personally, not United, in the North versus South trial match for the Football Association selectors to decide who would represent England at the upcoming home internationals. The North beat the South by three goals to one at Bristol's ground and the clever tackling of the halfbacks was picked out. Roberts created a favourable impression and was selected for his first cap. The news brought a whole host of pieces dedicated to the quality of Charlie Roberts. He has worthily earned the right to be thus recognised. He earned a great name for himself at Grimsby, but there is no denying that he has made rapid strides in his profession since joining the Clayton Club. It is generally conceded that the Manchester United directors made a good bargain when they paid even £700 to Grimsby Town for the transfer of Charles Roberts, who plays at centre-half back. Roberts himself later said that I shall never forget how pleased I was when I saw my name among the chosen for I was only 21 years of age with barely 18 months experience as a professional. After receiving the positive news Roberts travelled from Bristol back up north to Fairhaven in Lytham St Anne's where Ernest Magnell was training his United team all season long. United beat Leicester City 4-1 at Bank Street with Jack Petty scoring a hat-trick and then Charlie set his focuses on his country. The London Daily News said England's players had arrived the night before the game, staying at Saltburn-by-the-Sea where they were very comfortable in their quarters. It was the biggest moment of Roberts' career thus far. The game was played at Middlesbrough and that town being only a few miles from my home, all my friends came down to watch me play. Back in Manchester, the papers lamented his absence in the United team. United will be minus three of their best players in today's match at Barnsley. They drew 0-0, a poor result against the ninth-place team whose points tally was almost half that of the Uniteds. But Roberts enjoyed a good game for England against the Irish. He played well, said the Athletic News reporter. I have seen him cover more ground and his placing and shooting were at times not so accurate as his want, but he played well. He shaved the bar with a good effort, provided an excellent pass in the box for Booth, who missed, and Roberts defended well. It was a 1-1 draw. He returned to Manchester as an international footballer. He had become the first second division player to represent England for some time and was the first Manchester United player to ever feature for the three Lions. I don't think I let the side down exactly, but I know I ought to have done better. Roberts commented on his performance a couple of years later. But the United work continued for him. 
He returned to help United beat West Brom 2-0, but was once again absent as United travelled to Burnley. It turned into a disastrous day for the race for promotion. Roberts was playing in an interleague match between the English and the Scots in front of 30,000 at Hampden Park. More on that in a second, but United, well, they lost 2-0 to Burnley and dropped three points behind Bolton at the top. The management claimed that had Charlie Roberts been available, it would have made a lot of difference to them at Turf Moor. But commentators described United as getting rather stale. Up in Glasgow, the Scots went two ahead first. Steve Bloomer got one back for England before it. Long high shot by Roberts made matters level. Parkinson scored a third for England, who won 3-2. Sporting Life, a newspaper at the time, were very critical, peculiar for the time and out of the ordinary with the rest of the papers. They were critical of Roberts and his halfback colleagues. England is painfully deficient in class centre-halves. There are plenty of good men, but not a single one who so stands out beyond his fellows as to merit special preference. I was not satisfied with the half-back work at Middlesbrough against Ireland, even though the Irish attack was not good enough to cause much anxiety. And at Glasgow last Saturday, by common consent, the Scottish League vanguard was the weakest that has represented this organisation for several years. The committee must bear in mind that the Welsh attack is brilliant and incisive, and it is doubtful whether Wollstoneholm, Roberts and Leake will be able to cope with it. They will, however, probably be chosen because of the lack of better material to hand. Most other people disagreed. The general advertiser, for example, described the selection of Roberts as undoubtedly justified. Once again, Roberts returned to United. His February, March and April were basically spent juggling the commitments of England, the Football League and Manchester United. He played at Bank Street as United beat Grimsby Town, his old team, 2-1. Blackpool came next and the directors of the Seaside Club decided to cash in on the visit of Manchester United. Now, the players were only training round the corner at Fairhaven in Lydham St Anne's. They were actually closer to Blackpool than they were to Bank Street, mainly because Magnall was spending his evenings with a St Anne's girl called Eliza Hobson. Anyway, the match ticket price went up from the usual sixpence to a shilling, and 6,000 fans or so turned up, many of them coming from Manchester for what was undoubtedly an important game. Now, Bolton and Liverpool, United's two challenges for promotion, both lost on the same day and suddenly United were thrown back into the race for the title and more importantly, promotion. Roberts had a grand opening secured by getting the best of his opponent but after some fancy work he shot yards wide greatly to his own and the Mancunians disgust. Grassham scored the only goal for United. The outlook for Manchester United securing promotion appeared decidedly ominous but now the prospect is of much brighter description. Two days later, Roberts was in action again. He played so much in this period and this time it was for England who, having drawn with Ireland up in Middlesbrough, were looking to win the home championships with victories against Scotland and Wales. Billy Meredith's Wales were up first at Anfield. Roberts gave a grand exhibition at centre-half for England, said the Manchester Courier. They won 3-1 and on April the 1st they went down to the Crystal Palace ground to play Scotland, the biggest game of the lot and probably at this point the biggest game of Charlie's career. It was a hard-fought match and a 1-0 win for England meant they would be championship winners as long as Wales didn't beat Ireland in Belfast, where the two sides drew 2-2. The play fell greatly below expectations. The one exception consisted in the works of the half-backs, who tackled with so much skill and judgement that on neither side were the forwards allowed to settle down to really effective combination. Nothing could have been much better than the performances of Leake and Roberts. 
Roberts played all three games of the home championships and was the first player ever from the second division to achieve such a feat since the league began. He looked set for a long and prosperous international career. To give you some context of the time, two days after England's win against Scotland, the Boca Juniors Club was founded in Buenos Aires, Argentina, by a group of Italian and Greek boys, mainly from Genoa. Meanwhile, a 6-0 rout of Doncaster Rovers without Roberts put United top of the league on goal average. With five games left only, United looked well-placed to go up, but a 0-0 draw against Trinity was the first hiccup. That allowed Liverpool to go top on 50 points. United did recover by beating Burton United 5-0. Roberts was, as usual, the great centre-half we know him to be. But the Easter weekend ruined it all for United. 2-0 away at Chesterfield on Good Friday and they dropped three points behind both Liverpool and Bolton, the latter having had a couple of games in hand. A win at Anfield on Easter Saturday though and things could be rescued, but it wasn't to be. Liverpool scored four times, United none. Manchester United practically lost whatever chance they possessed of earning a place in the senior division when they went down before Chesterfield on Good Friday. But there was just a hope that a substantial win at Liverpool on Saturday, coupled with the downfall of Bolton at West Bromwich, would give them another opportunity. However, Liverpool had the whip hand practically throughout, and scoring a couple of goals in each half ran out easy winners. A last day of the season 3-1 win against Blackpool on the Monday was too late and United finished three points off promotion, a second consecutive year in third place. While Roberts had been away playing for England or for the Football League, United had dropped one point to Barnsley and two to Burnley, three points in total. United were proud that he'd been selected, but rueful of the impact it had had on the season. In future, that ruefulness, that complaint towards Roberts' involvement with the national team, it would threaten the player's place in the national side. So too would his nature as a rebel, and this was ever more true as the years went on. Roberts had drawn the wrath of the Football Association in his first season at United by wearing very short knickers that caused them to pass a regulation that shorts covered the knees. He ignored this throughout his career, obviously. United ended the season with a Manchester Senior Cup final against Bury at City's Hyde Road ground. It was a chance of redemption maybe, but not really. It's like winning the League Cup in an otherwise terrible year, like Fergie in 2005. Some complained of Roberts' poor performance, while others say he was the outstanding player on the field. Either way, it was too little or it wasn't enough. United lost 3-1 and ended the season in glum fashion. Training has commenced in good earnest, said Mr Ernest Magnell in early August 1905. United once again were favourites for promotion into the first division. They'd finished third twice in a row. But things wouldn't get started for a couple of weeks. Two practice games were going to be played first to get Magnell's players, including Charlie Roberts, ready. The whole of the proceeds will be given to charitable institutions, those of the first match to the Ancoats Hospital, where it is suggested to have a bed in the name of the Manchester United Club, and the proceeds of the second to the Manchester and Salford District Nurses Institution in Clayton. The kick-off each day will be at 3.30pm. As the above institutions are deserving of every support, it is hoped to see large crowds at each match. Season tickets are now on sale at Messrs Dean and Dawson's. Piccadilly. United won their first five games, with Charlie playing in all of them, and they went top straight away. The summer signing of forward Charlie Sagar from Burnley went down well with fans and journalists alike, and he scored five in as many games to open the season. Roberts, however, got the only goal as United beat Blackpool to end September with a record of six wins, no draws, no defeats and 13 goals scored. 
United will be considered very unlucky indeed if they are to be left out in the cold again. The club possesses a class of supporters who will stick to them through thick and thin. This is no half-hearted sort of support, and with such an enthusiastic spirit as this prevailing, it should not be long before the Manchester United star is found in the ascendant. Charlie was clearly the outstanding player at United, as he was referred to by many reporters at the time, and was now captain of Manchester United as well. His team ticked along nicely. Sagar's presence was incredibly useful. He netted 16 goals in 20 league appearances to help United finally achieve promotion. Jack Picken, who would stay with United throughout their successful period as a backup, he did well too. He made his debut in the same game as Sagar, didn't quite score as many at the start of the season, but would manage 20 goals in 33 league games. Jack Peddy was back in decent form as well. At the back, meanwhile, Charlie Roberts began to be joined by Dick Duckworth more regularly than before. Duckworth was a really brilliant defender, but at this time he was a United reserve who kept being moved around in the side. He sometimes came into the first team, playing at forward, outside, left, the back, half-back and so on. And the failure of the previous two seasons made fans nervous, but United were racking up a decent record. While the Wright brothers were trying to propel themselves into the sky with something called an airplane, Roberts scored the winner against Lincoln City in November and then another important one against Bristol in a 1-1 draw. United opened 1906 with a 5-0 win against Grimsby, sitting four points off the top of the table with a game in hand. Their main rivals were Bristol. A 7-2 cup win in the first round was a great day at Bank Street and United enjoyed a great cup run in this season, the highlight being a 5-1 trouncing of Aston Villa, the club of the football elites. Sagar scored two, Picken scored one. They went out to Woolwich Arsenal the next round. Meanwhile, a league game at Bradford saw matters get out of hand with the first signs of football hooliganism occurring. Charlie Roberts was called to speak to FA investigators about the events. One member of the FA Commission was also a member of the International Selection Committee and, incredibly, he asked Charlie Roberts who he was, having, assumedly, selected him for the games in the previous year. A 1-0 loss to Port Vale in late March was a shame, but United were still in a good position and favourites to finish second as Bristol City ran away with the title. Scores of five against Leicester and Barnsley got things back on track for United and meant that, despite Roberts missing much of the end of the season, United finally secured promotion to the top flight. Finally is the right word. Roberts came back for the third from last game of the season against Leeds and led his team out for the finale, a jubilant celebration against Burton United at Bank Street, where United hit six with flowers, balloons, trumpets in the main stand. George Wall scored one of the goals as an incredible April snowstorm hit Bank Street. Wall was a new signing from Barnsley. In the season, United had scored 90 goals in 38 games and conceded only 28, a truly remarkable defensive record. They were ready for the first division. In the summer, Charlie married Mary Elizabeth Camis. His manager, Ernest Magnell, got married at the same time. Mary Elizabeth was the daughter of Joseph, a sailmaker, and Elizabeth Radford. She'd grown up in Nottingley, Yorkshire, but moved to the Isle of Ely in Cambridgeshire in the early 1900s. May, as she was known by many, met Charlie in Grimsby, working as a waitress, and followed him to Manchester. She was a couple of years older than Charlie, two to be precise, but it seems she didn't tell him that, or at least she lied about her age on the census, and would do so until she died many years later. It was a great summer for Charlie, and it had been a long time coming this wedding. He'd been seeing May for a couple of years, but had said he wouldn't get married until United earned promotion. The time had finally come, and he duly delivered on his promise to his patient partner. 
Elsewhere in the world, the Le Mans Grand Prix was held for the first time. Sporting Club de Portugal was founded in Lisbon, and Alfred Dreyfus was exonerated and reinstalled in the French army, signalling the end of the Dreyfus affair, an internationally famous scandal in France involving institutional anti-Semitism in the army. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Charlie's debut in the first division came at the age of 23. It wasn't too old of an age, but he could have easily been a first division player soon after his 20th birthday. Let's look back. I mean, first he joined Grimsby Town just as they were relegated. Then he signed for United rather than City, Forest or Derby. And then United missed out on promotion by a point, then three points. And now, finally, his moment had arrived. The Reds went down to Bristol for the opening day of the season on September the 1st. Bristol being the team who had pipped United to top spot in the second division. It was a blisteringly hot September day. Goalkeeper Harry Modger turned out with a huge sun hat and the rest of the players lined their boots with French chalk, presumably to soak up the sweat, but it seems to have been another one of Magnol's crazy methods. Some questioned, in the papers and fans as well, why the games weren't delayed to a half-five kick-off instead of a half-three, especially after three of the Manchester City players had to be carried off due to the heat. In the Sheffield Daily Telegraph, one writer lambasted the authorities' persistence in playing football as early as September and called for a return to the October stance. I wonder how he'd feel about the Qatar World Cup. In the game itself, Bristol started well at Ashton Gate and did go ahead, but they missed a couple of chances. The Manchester forwards received passes from their rear men, talking about Roberts, and showed their power by the positions they maintained throughout heated rushes upon Clay's goal. 
Roberts was the one to equalise for United, and Pickham scored the winner before half-time. It seemed that an exciting game would produce more goals, but instead it petered out late on, and United secured two points in their first top-flight match in more than a decade. Commentators at Bristol informed their readers that United looked set for a very good season. They will be one of the strongest teams in the league. They are a first-class team. United seemed to be showing as much in the opening games. There's no doubt about that. They followed the win at Bristol with draws against Derby and Notts County and then a very impressive victory against Sheffield United, which came against all the odds. The team that had all the worst of the luck, that had a man off the field for nearly half the game and two others palpably lame, that lost the toss, did the most defending and therefore the least attacking. One by two goals to nil. And that team was Manchester United. United faced a hot sun and wind in the first half. Saw Yates and Beddo both pick up limps within five minutes. During the closing stages of the half, Picken, the inside left, began to behave in a manner that made his comrades wonder if he had suddenly taken leave of his senses. For instance, he asked Wonwell, who was making his debut as a centre forward, what he was doing in that position. Then he asked someone if it was Wednesday. Finally, he inquired of Wonwell who was winning and said he felt dazed. He was advised to leave the field but stayed on until the interval when he was seen by a doctor who found that he had been kicked on the back of the head and was suffering from slight concussion. Picken was taken off at half-time but then returned to the field for the final few minutes. It was this kind of action, this kind of lack of care that now seems so ridiculous that would lead to the premature death of our main character, our protagonist, Charlie Roberts, in 1939. The game, though, saw much praise for the United defence. Modger caught the ball like it was a cricket ball, apparently. Bonthorn's tackles were timed to perfection. Roberts' speed often completely upset the calculations of Donnelly and Brown. The goals came from Roberts' centre-half colleagues, Downey and Bell. But then things started to go downhill for United. They didn't win another game until late October and suffered heavy defeats to Sunderland, Everton, the Wednesday, Bury and then Manchester City. But still, there was some praise in the papers, and against every logic, United were viewed by some, and this was only a minority, as the biggest team in the league. This side who had never won a title or the English Cup, and had been close to extinction only four years prior. But nevertheless, after United beat Stoke at the Victoria ground, the Staffordshire Sentinel insisted it was a match between Giants and Pygmies. The United is about the biggest team in the league. They were getting decent crowds and taking big away followings, but it still seems an anomaly. Villa, City, etc., Everton as well, and Stoke themselves, were still probably bigger than United. That was, however, soon to change. In that game against Stoke, Robert suffered injury. His players much impressed the Stoke spectators. Everyone was sorry to see him hurt. Roberts' knee was cut in multiple places after he threw himself at a loose ball and was kicked strongly by Stokes Burgess. He was injured again in a match late in November against Bury and forced off early, with substitutes not to be introduced in football for another 59 years. How it took so long for someone to think of them, I do not know. In the Lancashire Cup, United played Liverpool. The match was interrupted by a severe rainstorm and the referee reported that when he ordered the resumption of play, a number of the Manchester players had got into their baths and refused to turn out. United were fined and kicked out of the tournament, though they cited a misunderstanding. It may be the first time any trouble was seen at a game between United and Liverpool. There was a little demonstration against the visitors on part of some of the spectators, but the police prevented any serious disturbance. United's problems were in attack. Sagar, Peddy, Pick and Al were all very good players, but far too inconsistent. As was written early in the season in the Athletic News, The weakness of Manchester United is not in the rear, but in the vanguard. The marksmanship must be improved. Of Roberts, it was written that He has been worth such an expenditure as £600, and it seems strange to think that he was once considered too fragile for football. Or he might have been with Newcastle United now. In another game, it was written that 
I don't think I have ever seen a more feeble front line in a league match. In vain, Roberts made openings for them. Still, Roberts and Bell often tackled finely, and the international centre-half back showed the crowd how an artist can kick in all kinds of positions. He was the key player for United, the captain, the leader, and certainly the best in the side. At this point, it again seems certain he would be the international centre-half England for many years. And yet, he would never play for his country again. Next time on United Through Time. And, and I mean, that puts them up with the, the greatest of, like, uh, Napoli signing Maradona. I mean, th- those, these are the greatest signings of all time. And they were treated like slaves. I think, I think his, his son actually played for them as well. We discuss why Roberts was overlooked for his country for the rest of his career, our Charlie becomes a title winner, an FA Cup winner, and changes football as a sport forever before joining Oldham Athletic for a massive fee, missing the war, managing the Latics, and then tries to set up his own football club. It will be a busy one. Thanks for listening to part one of Charlie Roberts, and if you've enjoyed the show, please share it with as many people as you can. And for more bonus content from United Through Time, check out Patreon, www.patreon.com slash unitedthroughtime. You can get more content there for as little as 38p a week. Cheers. Have a great week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to United Through Time. Each episode takes hours to produce, maybe as many as 100 hours per episode, maybe more. Maybe I'll actually measure it next time. Anyway, it is all for free and it's going to continue for free. And I think what uh, what I put out is of pretty decent quality and I really would appreciate any kind of support. There's two ways you can support the show. One is by sharing it with everyone you know, or the other is by paying a little bit of money each month or both. And if you pay a bit of money, you'll get some good exclusive bonus podcasts in return. You can get up to two extra episodes each month, blog posts, family trees, photos, etc, etc. There's loads on offer. UnitedThroughTime.com forward slash support for details. Cheers. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 